morning. This is Hebrew, or sorry, this is Exodus, uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant of the Lord that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Again this morning... I want to I want to once again sort of situate you with where we are in in the book and and we'll come to the as we come to the passage this morning it's clear that the the author of Hebrews has this passage in Exodus 24 in mind we'll see how that uh, how that works itself out uh, in the section we'll be in this morning in Hebrews 9:15 to 28 but I want to situate us once more with where we where we are in the book. We started in the book with several chapters of the author proclaiming over and over that Jesus is better. And at this point, if you've, if you've been with us, then, then it, it's feeling uh, uh, redundant that, that the author comes back to this idea of Jesus is better. And I keep coming back to, to reiterating how the author shows us all these different ways that Jesus is better because this is what the author wants us to see. This is what God wants us to see in the book of Hebrews is first and foremost that Jesus is better than any else held out to us in, in this world. And he's, and he's better than, than all of even the Old Covenant, the Old Testament rituals and, and, and systems that, that were uh, given to God's people by, by, the, by the Lord God. Those were, those were meant to point to this person who is better, who is the one who provides full salvation. But a few chapters ago, just a, a few weeks ago, we looked at, in Hebrews chapter 6, the author uh, uh, pausing and, and talking to us about Jesus as the great high priest, but then pausing and saying, wait, before I jump into this, I need to talk to you about your spiritual sluggishness. And you remember this a few weeks ago. He, he said, I can't, I can't get into the meat yet because you're still on milk. You're, still, you, you're supposed to be mature Christians. You're supposed to have, have advanced past this point, but you're still on milk. I can't in, get into this meaty stuff because of your spiritual sluggishness. So he paused and he said, stop being so sluggish. Take your faith seriously. 
press into these truths about Jesus Christ. But then, but then rather than, than continuing to feed them milk for the last couple of chapters, if you've noticed, he has laid out a platter of meat for them. In chapter 7 and 8 and 9, he's talked about these, uh, these glorious truths about Jesus. Uh, first of all, he talked about how Jesus is the true high priest for his people. And then in chapter 8, he talked about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. And that there are two things that the author of Hebrews cares more about than any other author of Scripture or the New Testament. It's these two things, that Jesus is the great high priest and Jesus brings about a new covenant for us. And those things sort of come to a head in our passage this morning. So we're going to read in, uh, uh, verses 15 to 28 of chapter 9. And in the next few weeks, we're going to, uh, as we approach Easter, we're going to approach this, we're kind of coming to this great chapter on faith in Hebrews chapter 11. This famous, uh, as some people have called it, the hall of faith. Uh, this, this list of, of how all of these people had faith that we ought to emulate, that we ought to, to look to in, in clinging to this Savior who is better, Jesus Christ. And we'll come to that passage, Lord willing, on, on Easter morning, this wonderful passage on, on faith in just a couple weeks here. But this morning we'll read verses 15 to 28 of chapter 9. This is God's Word. Therefore, He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. I'll pause right there. That it, it, You may recognize that from what Ivan just read. This is the author pointing back to that ritual in Exodus chapter 24, where Moses sprinkles the blood on the people. Verse 21, and in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. For it was to offer himself, or sorry, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to offer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once 
to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. If you have been around Christianity for a long time, then perhaps you, you, you might at, at some point have found it strange or, or have interacted with somebody who finds it strange that Christians talk so much about blood. Why do Christians talk so much about blood? It, it, particularly, this, this comes into focus when, when we might have a conversation with somebody who's less familiar with Christianity. And it's hard to talk about the gospel. It's hard to talk about uh, the, the core message of the Bible without talking about this idea of blood. But it, it, most people think that's pretty strange. Why so much obsession with blood? The author of Hebrews this morning, as he lays out for us uh, the, this person of Jesus, the one who is our great high priest and the one who, who brings about, inaugurates a, a new covenant for us, shows us this morning why we care so much about blood. What I want us to see this morning is, is, is these three truths that the author lays out for us, and they're all because of what Jesus has done on the cross for you and me in shedding his blood. First of all, because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you, you are freed from bondage. We'll also see that because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you, you're represented before God. And finally, we'll see that because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you, you, you can look to a full and final salvation. Those are the three things that we're going to look at this morning as we look at this passage, these three, three truths that the author lays out for us. The first is this, because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for you, you are freed from bondage. You are freed from bondage. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me for a moment. We'll come back to verse 15. Verse 15 is sort of a transition verse, but look at verses 16 and 17. There's, there's a tricky issue here in verses 16 and 17 that I want us to look at, uh, and we're going to spend just a minute in the, in the text, uh, diving deep into the text for a second, because I don't do this very often. I'm going to, to uh, have a slight difference of opinion with how uh, the, the folks uh, in the ESV have translated this passage in almost every single place. I think they do a, a really wonderful job of translating the text. But here I think there, there, there's a very tricky issue, and I want you to see this. The word in, in Greek, diatheke, can mean two different things. It can mean covenant or it can mean will. Normally, in, in, uh, in uh, common parlance, uh, in, in, in the Greek world, it would be, uh, it, it would be taken to mean will. Uh, somebody who has a, a will outlined in, in the case of their death and where their, uh, where their assets would, would go, how they would uh, convey to, uh, to somebody else, a normal will. But in the Bible, almost everywhere in the New Testament, it has this other meaning that it takes on, this idea of a covenant, of a relationship that's established between usually, when the Bible speaks of it, God and his people. And most, most English translations in, in verses 16 and 17, even though everywhere else 
in the book of Hebrews, this word diatheke is taken to mean covenant. Most English translations uh, change in these verses to the word will. You see that in verse 16. For for where, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. This is a possible meaning here, and I know we're diving a little deep here, but, but I want to show you why I think this is important. It's, it's possible that it means will here, but, but what I think actually is, is a better way to take this is, is to say, is to keep that meaning of covenant. So where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. I think a better uh, a, a translation of this is, is, is this. Where a covenant is involved, the death of the covenant maker must be born. Born or carried in that sense. When a death is involved, the death or when a covenant is involved, the death of the covenant maker must be born. And then verse 17, for a covenant is validated only with deaths of sacrificial animals. Okay. I want I want to I want to explain to you why I think this is the case and why I think this is important. The author of Hebrews always uses this word to talk about covenants. And what he's doing here in these verses is he's drawing us back to this Old Testament theme, this idea of a covenant. And this happens over and over and over in the Old Testament where God establishes covenants with his people. And it's really, it's really one extended covenant across most of the Old Testament where it's this grace by which God reaches out to his people who have rebelled against him and reestablishes a relationship with them. He does this in the book of Genesis several times, perhaps most famously in, in Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham has, has, has just been uh, delivered, has just been blessed uh, by Melchizedek, which we saw just a couple weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 7, and, and he's defeated these different armies, and he's, he's given praise to the Lord God, and now God takes him outside and shows him the stars. You remember that scene, right? He takes him outside and shows him the stars, and he says, this is what, how many descendants you're going to have. If you're able to count all the stars in the sky, and this is Abraham looking up without any light pollution at, at every single star that he can see, if you're able to count those, then, then sure, you can count your descendants. And obviously the answer is no, he can't count them. The promise is descendants without number. And, and, and God makes this promise to him, but then immediately afterwards he, he tells Abraham to do something a little bit odd. He says, I want you to, to sacrifice a number of different animals. And I, and I want you, it's, it's a bit gruesome actually, I want you to, to tear them in half. I want you to take these these dead animals, and place them uh, uh, apart from each other, one half on one side, one half on the other. And Genesis 15 goes on to, to talk about how God establishes his covenant. The word is actually that he cuts a covenant with Abraham. And with these, these animals that are, that are split in two on either side, uh, there's, there's a ceremony that takes place. And we see this in the ancient world when covenants were established. The book of Jeremiah talks about this, how, how people would walk through the, 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 the less powerful party in a covenant when an agreement was made between two nations. The, the less powerful party would walk through animals like this, basically saying, if we are unfaithful to this covenant, then we will become like these animals. We will become Cursed, dead, ripped apart. 
But what happens in the Genesis 15 story is completely unexpected because, because the person who moves through the animals is not Abraham, as you would expect. It's this, it's this smoking firepot. It's meant to represent God himself. And in this strange scene that's quite foreign to us, we see God pledging himself to this covenant that he has cut, that he has made with Abraham. So much so that he passes through the animals showing that if he is unfaithful to the covenant, he himself will be torn apart. God so promises himself to his people and says, I will be faithful to this covenant that he is willing to pledge his very self. The reason I think that it's important that the, that the author here is, is likely talking about a covenant is because I think he's, he's drawing on some of these very ideas. So when he says where a covenant is involved, the death of the covenant maker must be born. That's, that, that's the normal use of that Hebrew word. It's not to be established. It's the verb pharaoh, which is, which is to be born or carried. It's, it's not normally, it doesn't normally mean established, but the death must be born. And we'll come back to that language in just a minute because the author comes back to it. Uh, it, it what, what the author is saying is that just as in the old Testament in these ancient covenants, there had to be blood involved and a death had to happen in order for that covenant to be established. A death had to happen because of the, the sin of the people, the unholiness of the people in relationship to a holy God. There had to be blood. Just as, as that was the case back then, so, so it is the case that Jesus had to shed his blood for you and for me. He, he gives us a, a specific example of this in, in verses 18 to 22. And we don't have time to look at this in, in detail, but, but basically what he does here is he points back to the verses that Ivan read in Exodus 24 where another covenant is being made. And, and did you see when Ivan was reading how much blood there was everywhere? Blood on the altar, blood in the tabernacle, blood on the people. Blood was actually sprinkled on the people. It's, a, it's again, a gruesome scene. And the point, once again, is that when this relationship between a holy God and an unholy people is established, there has to be blood. And then the author gets to the point of all of this in verse 22. He says this, he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why is all this blood so important? Because without the deaths of these representative Animals in the Old Testament, without, without blood being shed, there is no forgiveness. There's no freedom. We are perpetually in, in bondage. And we are perpetually guilty. There's no other way for forgiveness to happen other than the shedding of blood. There are a few important applications here for us, I think. The, the first is that it highlights, this highlights the seriousness of our sin. And we all recognize that there's, that there's something wrong in the, in the world, whether we're familiar with Christianity or not, 
we all recognize there's something wrong in the world. And our, our culture recently has, has dug into this, has, has uh, looked specifically at, at people's past sins and brought those to light very frequently, uh, it, more and more as technology is used more and more for communication, and brought those to light and, and, and pointed back to these things and said, look, this person needs to be held accountable for what they said back here. There, there's, there's specific cultural iterations of this, and, and, and sometimes that's helpful, sometimes it's not so helpful. I'm not uh, here to discuss uh, the, the helpfulness or unhelpfulness of that kind of thing today, but, but what I want you to see is our culture cares about and sees that there's something wrong in the world and that there needs to be some level of accountability for people. Our culture recognizes something about the seriousness of sin, but here's, here's the thing. In our culture, what we tend to do is we, we love to do that with other people's sin. Or, or, or people who are not like us or in our camp. We love to rush to, to keep those folks accountable, but what about our own sin? What about our own need for accountability? The author of Hebrews here lays out for us the seriousness of our own sin, and it's represented in all this blood. There's a Flannery O'Connor short story called Enoch and the Gorilla. Enoch and the Gorilla. Maybe you've read it. It's, uh, it's, it's one of her masterful short stories that... Uh, Enoch is a, is a young man who uh, is, experiences uh, a, a lot of different um, things in his past, but, but one day he sees that there is a famous gorilla that's, uh, that's going around, and, and, and this gorilla, this man in a gorilla costume as a, as a part of the circus is, is uh, greeting people, and there are lines out the door for, for people to go shake the hand of this gorilla. And Enoch is just captured by this. And, and he says, I want to go shake the hand of this gorilla. So he gets in, in line to, to shake the hand of the famous gorilla. And he, and he gets up to him and he shakes his hand and the gorilla kind of brings him in. And, and, and behind the mask of the gorilla, the gorilla says, uh, he says, who the hell are you? Uh, that's a direct quote. So Sorry. That's what the gorilla says. And Enoch is just completely, uh, completely caught off guard by this. So he's, he's humiliated. So he, so he goes and, and, he's, and he's thinking about it. How could this have happened? And, 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 he, and he sees later on that the gorilla is going to be in another location shaking people's hands. And, and there's the... Uh, the van that the gorilla is, is, in, is traveling in, and he jumps into the van while the gorilla is out shaking people's hands. And then the gorilla goes back into the van, and, and Enoch murders the man in the gorilla costume. He takes the costume for himself. And there's this, there's this uh, amazing uh, portrait of words that, that Flannery O'Connor uses to, to describe how he walks out, and he's got this bundle, and he and, and it's, it's in the, the light where you can barely see it, the, the twilight, and he, and, he, and he buries his own clothes. He slowly takes off his own clothes, and he slowly steps into the gorilla costume. And, he, and he's got two heads for a moment, but then he covers up that, that head 
and he has one head now, and he's, and he's in the gorilla costume, and he, and he goes and he tries to find somebody who will shake his hand, and he sees an old couple on a bench. And he walks up to him, and they run away screaming. And that's the end. What O'Connor paints for us in that story that, that I think is so beautiful is Enoch's wrestling. He, 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 he sees something that he wants. And, he, and, he, and he's involved in this, in this sinful behavior that brings on guilt. And he, and, he, and he gets on that gorilla. He gets on that thing that he thinks he wants, that he was willing to commit murder for. He gets it on, and he thinks... He finally, she even says, he finally felt so happy. And then he goes up to somebody, they run away. He realizes, he realizes how hideous, how ugly this has made him. How that behavior has now transformed him into something that he doesn't even recognize. This is what sin does to us. We start out with small sins, the kinds of things that we think will be fulfilling. That, that, we think, that we think will be the kinds of things that we could do anything for. And, 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 and we begin to do more and more for those, those masters in our lives is what they become. And we become, begin to become somebody that we don't recognize. The hideousness of sin is on display in these covenant ceremonies. But, but it not only highlights the hideousness of our sin, it, it highlights too for us, friends, the, the extent of God's love. The covenant ceremony was, was supposed to represent the death of the one who broke the covenant. But what we see in this passage is, and the author comes back to, I told you he comes back to this language about bearing the death in verse 28, at the very end of the passage, here's what he says. He says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, this is a direct allusion to Isaiah chapter 53 where the suffering servant is, is put on display where God promises that one will come who will suffer and who will bear the sins of many. He will, he will bring your sins and put them on his own shoulders. He will suffer the consequences of the covenant breaker even though he wasn't the one who broke the covenant. This is the extent of God's love for you on full display. He has taken death on himself despite the fact that you were the one who wandered, despite the fact that you were the one who put on that gorilla costume, you were the one who displayed the hideousness of sin, he took it on himself. As Tim Keller so beautifully puts it, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So because of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, you are freed from bondage. But not only are you freed from bondage, friends, you are also represented before God. And I want you to see just how important this is to the author as well. You are represented before God. Look at verse 23. Something strange happens here. He says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. So, so that makes sense, right? That the, the things on earth, the earthly things needed to be purified because there's unholiness there. But then something surprising happens. He says, but the heavenly things themselves also had to be purified with better sacrifices than these. It makes sense that the, that the earthly things had to be purified. 
why on earth would, would the heavenly things have to be purified? Why would, why would the things uh, up, up in the very presence of God have to be purified? Well, the idea here is that, is that it's, the, it's not only the physical things in our lives that have to be purified, but it's these, these spiritual lives, our very, our very spirits, our very souls as believers have to be purified. God talks about in the New Testament how we are made a dwelling place for God, how, how the holy God comes to dwell with us. And, and, and it's not enough for us just to get cleaned up a little bit on the outside, but God has come to, to, to cleanse us from the inside, to cleanse our very consciences, as he put it last week in our passage we looked at. So for us, as people who have so many things on, on offer for self-improvement, principles to live by, ways to, to, to have a better life right now, ways to clean up my act, and some of these things can be very helpful. I think about some of the habits that, that, that we're stuck in or, or addictions that we go to, and there are wonderful programs that help to, to break some of those habits in our lives, but here's what the... Here's what the author of Hebrews shows us is that it's not enough. It's not enough for just the habits to change. It's not enough for just the outside to be cleansed, but that the gospel has to go deep inside and, and to transform, to cleanse the very heavenly, the spiritual things. It has to cleanse you from the inside out. So it's wonderful, these, some, these habit-breaking programs or, or areas of self-improvement, it's wonderful for us to be involved in, in things that, that, that help us to, uh, to, to live more faithfully uh, to God or to break habits of sin in our lives, but what we truly need is a deep inward cleansing. How is this possible? This is what the author tells us in verse 24. He says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. This is, it literally means he's appeared before the face of God. And in the Bible, to see the face of God, to appear before the face of God, is to, is to go into the, 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 the gracious, blessing presence of God. Think of number six, where we're where the benediction is given by the priest, it says, the Lord, turn his face toward you. And the idea here is that, that if, you, if the Lord's face is turned towards you, then you are someone who is living in the blessing of God himself. And what our author tells us is that Jesus has entered into the very presence of God. He stands before the face of God. And not only does he stand before the face of God, but it's on your behalf that he represents you. That you, the one who, who has struggled with the hideousness of sin, you are represented by Jesus Christ himself before God. James McBride, the famous essayist and author, in his book, The Color of Water, uh, talks about this image of his, of his mom. His mom had 12 kids. Twelve kids in the house, and, and he talks about uh, one of the difficulties he talks about in growing up in a family with twelve kids is that 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 mom never was able to give you her full attention. 
She's always carrying a baby or two, and, and, and dad would come in, and, 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 and if he sat down, there wasn't enough room on his lap for more than two or three of them, so, so, they, so they were always fighting for space on dad's lap. And he said, I looked at other families, and I looked at, at, at shows like Father Knows Best. This was written decades ago, and, and he said, I wanted to be, have a family like that where, where there were only enough kids to fit on dad's lap. I think sometimes, I think sometimes we, we see God this way. We, we, we think there's not enough room for all of us to, to be on his lap, so to speak. We've got to compete for space in his presence. We've got to, we've got to, how could he pay attention to all of his children at, at, at once? And here's the glorious promise of the gospel. Is that there is one child, the true son of God who stands before the face of God and fully represents you, that you never have to vie for space or the Father's attention because Jesus represents you there. What does this, what does this mean for us? It means all sorts of things, but, but for one, it means that, that we don't have to hide. We don't have to hide and run away when we feel the shame and the weight of our sin. We don't have to run away. What we need to do is we need to run to him. Run to him when you, when you feel the difficulty of your sin and, and, the, and the fact that you've gone back once more. Don't hide. Don't run away. You have a representative who stands before the face of God. Not only, not only that, friends, but it means you don't have to earn it. You don't have to earn that spot. There's one who's already earned it. Remember the very first verse of our passage, verse 15. Remember how God characterizes us. The author characterizes us here. He says, those who are called were people who, who, who are called, who have received the promised eternal inheritance, were the people who have been redeemed or ransomed. These are all passive words. We didn't do those things. We didn't call ourselves. We didn't earn it ourselves. We've been called. We've received. We've been ransomed. It's not up to us to earn it. You've been freed because of the blood of Jesus. You have a representative because of the blood of Jesus. And, and because of the blood of Jesus, you also look to a full and a final salvation. And this is where the, where the author ends. And this is how we'll come to the Lord's table together, reflecting on this truth that's laid out in verses 27 and 28. Just as it is appointed for man to die once. Now the author gets to maybe the deepest issue that we have, that we will all die. He, he lays before us, in light of all these truths about Jesus, our mortality. We will die. And we only die once. And there's a finalness to it. But as John Murray puts it, it's, it's not a final finality. There's something after. He says, and, and then judgment. That there's a holy God who, when we die, we will appear before. And he will judge all things. He will make all things right. There will be no loose ends untied. But just as this is true, so Christ, having been offered once, just as we die once, Christ only had to be offered 
once, not over and over and over like the Old Testament high priest, but he was offered once to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time. And this time he's not going to be here to deal with sin. This time there won't be blood involved. This time he'll be here to save you. To bring you to full salvation. To bring all these promises that you have experienced in part on this earth as you have known your Savior and and, and known Jesus Christ, you will experience in fullness for all eternity. That's what he's coming back for. And that's what we celebrate as we come to the Lord's table. Is that we've been freed from bondage. That his blood has has set us free and it's forgiven us. But also that, that we have this representative before God that even as we take and eat the bread and the wine, that he is standing before the Father praying for you and for me, representing us. And and as we stand around these tables, we're, in a sense, drawn up to be with him. And and not only that, but he's coming back. He's coming back, friends. He's coming back, and he will save us to the fullest. So as we come to the table, we remember Jesus Christ who when he was with his disciples in this last supper before his death, he knew he was going to his crucifixion. He knew the blood was going to be shed. And he said, this is my body as he took the bread. And he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant There's that phrase again, the new covenant in my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of your sins, take and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 